This week on the Back Table Podcast. I always say the same thing. I'm like, this is like a bank robbery. Do exactly as I say and it will go smoothly. So <laughs> please always do end expiration breath hold. Don't do it halfway through the expiration or anything like that. Even when you guys sign off for lunch, please tell the person exactly how you did the end expiration breath hold because it's going to matter for my probe placement because I do everything with one breath hold. Welcome to the Back Table Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. Subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, or reach out to us on Twitter or email to let us know how we can make this a more valuable resource for the endovascular community. The FlowMet Peripheral Blood Flow Monitoring System from Medtronic provides continuous and objective measurements on the table, so you know your work is working. Using a sensor affixed to a digit, the FlowMet system supplements angiography to support procedural insights, monitoring blood flow changes throughout the procedure without inhibiting your workflow. Watch your work at Medtronic.com backslash FlowMet. Today we're going to be talking about renal ablations, and I'm joined by Ninesh Parikh is the Moffitt Cancer Center in Tampa Bay. Nine, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. How long have you been in Tampa? So came down here a little over five years ago, so 2016, straight out of fellowship. Before that, I was at the Brigham for my interventional fellowship, and I was at NYU before that for uh, residency. Uh, and so you spent all your time at the Cancer Center? Yeah. We're, there's actually three main sites, but we at the IR group is only at one. The other two are mostly clinic sites. And so we luckily and fortunately only cover the one site, which is where we do all of our cases. That's great. And that's the main site. Yeah, it's great. How many doctors are in your practice? So there's eight physicians. We just hired our eight about three months ago. And there's seven APPs or NPSPAs, depends on what state you're located in for what to call them, mid-levels, you know, however you want to turn them. But so there's 15, I guess, technically total. All IR or IR and DR? Nope, all IR. That's awesome. Yeah. And so the diagnostic radiologists are a separate entity there? Well, so how it happens is, so I guess I can take a second to explain the model. At Moffitt Cancer Center, we have Moffitt Medical Group which is all of the physicians. So if you think about the four pillars of oncology, medical oncology, surgical oncology, radiation oncology, and interventional oncology, of course, is important. All of us are employed by Moffitt Medical Group. So it's a physician group practice that is separate from the hospital. Each of the programs is site-specific. So, you know, there's GI oncology that encompasses surgical and medical oncology, and then the radiation oncology is separate and the radiology is separate. So there's GI, there's GU, there's cutaneous sarcoma, blah, 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 blah. But radiology is all one and radiation oncology is all one. Within the Department of Radiology, I think we're up to like 50 total attendings. And then there's, you know, like any other academic place, there's IR specific and then there's, you know, body, neuro, whatever it is. When I started, there were six of us. I was the sixth IR physician and we had three APPs or mid-levels. And so just to give you a sense of the growth of the entire institution, I think we had like 225 or 250 doctors and maybe just as many APPs at the institutional level. And then today we have about 350 doctors and as many APPs. And in the Department of Radiology, we have, I think like 50 physicians now and about nine APPs. So it's been a decent amount of growth. Wow. Yeah. And we're actually about to hire a ninth IR physician. If anybody's listening, is it interested uh, after this discussion, please email me or call me. Sorry for the plug, Mike, but... Well, no, I, I, I want the plug because I, I need the email address to send you my CV. Yeah, <laughs> you got it. So, hey, but you guys also have a, a fellowship, right? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you for that plug as well. So we are, our trainees come from University of South Florida. It's a great relationship with them. Uh, know a lot of their IR folks as well. They're awesome. But... What used to be before IRDR is that they would come over to us in their fourth or fifth year, and then they would do a month at a time. And normally we'd have a resident on rotation the entire year. They're transitioning right now, and we're getting the more junior residents uh, as one of the offsites for USF. But at the same time, a few years ago, we started an interventional oncology fellowship. And so the goal is for folks who want to focus on oncology from G-tubes and ports, of which we do, I don't know, dozens a day, up through Y90, PAE for prostate cancer, which is one of my oh man babies. Yeah, there's recent publication that just came out with our name on it. That came out in July. That was like 
a year and a half of really hard work, but there's a few more that are coming out and we can talk about prostate all day as well. Oh, I'll take you up on that. (laughs) We actually, we did a podcast on uh, PAE for, for cancer, maybe about a month ago. The Sam Mula came on and talked with us about, you know, the study he did was really exciting. Yeah, that was an exciting study. I will tell you that by way of volume. So I started the program, the only one that doesn't at Moffitt right now, I started the program. I've told Aaron about this a bunch of times, but I started the program. I started it about a year after I came. And in the last four years, I just did (laughs) on Thursday, which was a long day. I did number 133, 134, 135 all in the same day. Badass. Well, we're definitely talking about this. Yeah. So there's a lot of data coming out that I can't wait to publish. As soon as you publish it, we're we're having you back on. Yeah, no. I've told told Aaron a bunch of times that like I would would do anything to talk about it because I work really closely with the radiation oncologists. I'm waiting for my, one of my prospective studies to open. That's a whole nother discussion in terms of dealing with CMS and dealing with the FDA. But actually my radiation oncologists are waiting for me believe it or not. That is so awesome. I can't wait to talk about this. Badass. So we can talk about that, but I will talk about prostates all day, every day. So basically what you're saying is the trainees need to be listening. It's a great opportunity to basically level up on IO in a great place to live. How would prospective trainees go about applying uh, for this fellowship? Yeah. So what I would say is just contact me and I'd put them in touch with our section head and he's awesome. He also trained at the Brigham. He's a Hungarian guy. His name is Belakish. He's hilarious. We share a wall. He recruited me down five years ago uh, and just kind of like said, go. And he's been nothing but supportive ever since. So my practice, I, I started five years ago. I actually always, I actually matched in urology before I did IR, uh, but I never started because I wanted to do IR, but I always had the interest in urology. So I always knew that I wanted to work closely with the GU guys. We have a great GU program down there or down here, I should say. And they've been really open and awesome about sending over cases and stuff like that. And so I've kind of tried to be the GU person. So I do probably, so we have about nine slots for ablation a week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. And I usually am doing, usually, so I've said, been fortunate. And again, I hesitate to like be um, egotistical or anything like that. I honestly just telling numbers, but usually I'm doing two to four renal mass ablations a week and two to four PAEs a week. That's pretty great. Yeah. We set it up right. So just a reminder, they're, they're hiring. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And there's, and you know, it's like Tampa is one of these places that's actually awesome and has been growing like crazy. And the volume at Moffitt is just, that's what I was saying in the administrative side, we're trying to figure out how to handle the volume, which is a good problem. I mean, so like after all this, I mean, do I even need to come down for an interview? Like it sounds <laughs> great. It, it's pretty good. I'm lucky that I got recruited here. I'm lucky that, uh, like most things in life, success is mostly luck-based. So I think- Well, and but it sounds like you guys have, have built it a lot in the last year. And so I would guess, being Moffitt Cancer Center, that you guys are pretty onk-heavy practice. Yeah? Oh, yeah. It's all onk. So I can tell you right now, you know, we're doing... So here, here's our setup. We have three main angio rooms, two Siemens and one Toshiba, which is that 40 CT I was telling you about. We have uh, two dedicated CT scanners for biopsies and ablations. We have an ultrasound room. We have a CR Actually, we have two arms for C-arms and we have a clinic room. So by clinic volume, you know, PAEs, Y90s, um, splenic embos, kyphoplasty, SVC stents, any ablation, liver and renal, we're seeing in clinic before and after. Sometimes we'll be the ones following them primarily. We're seeing, I think I just looked at the numbers, anywhere from 1,500 to 1,700 outpatient clinic visits a year. Whoa. Yeah. So, and we have a fully baked clinic, you know, there's eight providers and seven APPs. So we have a fully baked clinic and then we have a fully baked inpatient consult service. We're getting anywhere from five to 10 a day. And those are the, you know, ton of G tubes, ton of malignant biliary drains, ton of, you know, malignant hydronephrosis, all that kind of stuff. Well, I mean, it's a good reminder that IO is a very wide net, you know, it's, it's not all ablations. It's not all Y90. I mean, it's, Cancer patients have a lot of pathology, and so. Right, and and also I should say this for any trainees or any prospective people interested in, in coming, I will say you gotta be ready to do biopsies. I'm biopsying one centimeter lung masses five times a day. I mean, the way that it ends up working out, probably 50% of your clinical days are spent on a biopsy service, whether ultrasound or CT guided. And of that, you know, you're you're the one that has to biopsy the smallest stuff. So biopsying the pancreas, biopsying the center of the kidney, biopsying, it's not fun, biopsying lung lesions, central lung lesions, small lung lesions. But the problem is that in 
At an oncology center, tissue drives both diagnosis and therapy. And so often and more often than not, molecular markers end up determining both prognosis and targeted therapy. So they need a ton of tissue. See, I don't see that as a negative. I think it's, it's a very realistic thing for a lot of people in practice for me. And that's how I get a lot of work. I mean, every, I'll, I'll tell you, every, every lung ablation that I've ever done has come from a lesion that I have biopsied and made a phone call. I mean, that, think that that's, especially for people who are not going to be in a, you know, a traditional academic center, that is going to be part of your practice. And I think it's, it's, it's a great part of practice building. Yeah. And, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think a lot of uh, folks don't always understand. It's not calling and saying, hey, I can ablate this and can you send for ablation? It's just saying, yeah, I'm happy to do the biopsy. By the way, we can ablate it if you want, but do whatever you want. Call me if you need to. Totally. If you become the person who is doing the hard biopsies, you know, the ones that a lot of people don't want to do, you become a very reliable part of that cancer team. For me, that, that was one of the ways I worked myself in in my new job was, you know, I, I said yes to a lot of the ones that other people had said, I don't think I can do it. Right. And that's what we try to engender in anybody that we're hiring is like, listen, all the folks in the community around us, they're doing great work, but they're not cancer specific and they're not thinking, well, the patient's really going to need that tissue somehow or another. So do your best to try to make sure that you do the patient right and get tissue for them. So you're absolutely right. For IO, you have to think Y90s are great, ablations are great, all that stuff's awesome. But it really kind of starts with venous access and like biopsy. Totally agree. So, I mean, we could spend, I mean, we have spent entire episodes talking about different types of ablation just for the purpose of time and, you know, just keeping a cohesive topic. We're just going to be focusing on renal ablations. I would imagine you guys are doing a ton. Yeah. So like I was saying, the way we have it, we, is that we have a dedicated scanner. It's funny. We're actually limited by anesthesiology right now, just because we're turning over our chairman. But right now we have three slots on Tuesdays, three slots on Wednesday and two on Thursday, then that's, so that's eight slots total. And we're still booked out probably, I don't know, three, four weeks at least. <laughs> that's impressive. We want more. Uh, so, well, where are they fine. coming from? Who's, I mean, are they coming from urology, medonc? Yeah. So they kind of come from everywhere. If I break down how it's mostly liver and kidney, we have dedicated GU and GI tumor boards. We even have a dedicated liver tumor board. That's just with the hepatobiliary surgeons, the medical oncologists. And remember, we're disease-specific, and even within disease specialties, there's really, truly site-specific folks. So I'm very close with one of the medical oncologists. He does HCC and cholangio, and that's it. There's another person who does HCC, but she also does esophagus, and that's it. There's another person who does esophagus and pancreas, and that's it. So most of the time, folks are pretty on top of exactly what the updated you know, guidelines are. We do have pathways at Moffitt, which are our own pathways. They're pretty closely aligned with NCCN pathways. So most of our liver ablations probably come from our tumor boards. There's always a quote unquote healthy discussion about what should be ablated and what should be resected or et cetera, et cetera. We could go down that path, but we don't need to. In terms of uh, renal mass- those conversations every week. Yeah, exactly. And in terms of, and you have to, I mean, it's just, you have to keep having the conversation. In terms of renal mass ablation though, the majority of them come from GU inside Moffitt. And that's one thing that we're lucky about because everybody's working for the same physician practice. Nobody really cares. And, and the GU guys, I have to say, I have to give them real kudos because in their notes, they'll say, especially for lesions that are two centimeters or smaller, they'll say, we discussed active surveillance, we discussed ablation, and we discussed surgery. That's super cool. Yeah. And so I can't emphasize enough just talking to them, but even more so knowing your own data and knowing the data that's out there. Knowing data that supports a competing modality for treatment. And that's really great. It's really refreshing. Right. So it's gone so far. And again, we're very fortunate at Moffitt because we kind of all work together, but I'm giving talks with them on renal masses, both for biopsy and for ablation. So I'm giving the talk on ablation. They're giving the talk on partial nephrectomy. And we're both talking about the same outcomes, right? Well, let's talk about that now. Sure. Biopsies. You hear different things. I remember in training being taught, you know, if you're confident it's a renal cell, don't biopsy it because of risk of seeding. Where do they and you stand on that? The risk of seeding has only been proven by like one case report. There's never been a large series that's shown any seedings. I still fight that. Right. And if you look at the data, I've actually given talks on this. There's no such thing that demonstrates that seeding is a real possibility with coaxial technique. The seeding that occurred and that has been reported happened with multiple passes, number one. Okay. So in my mind, biopsy, you should never be afraid to biopsy a renal mass because of seeding. You also shouldn't be afraid to biopsy renal mass because of bleeding. 
right? I mean, I think it was a nephrologist that once said, if it's not bleeding, then you're not biopsying it correctly. Like you're not biopsying it correctly. <laughs> and that's especially true for renal mass. The reason I say that is because if you're comfortable with any angiography, which any general IR should be, should be able to stop any bleeding that's happening because of the kidney itself, even a lumbar, if you're through and through the lumbar. So I can't remember the last time I biopsied a kidney with a 20 gauge. I do 18. Me too. Every time. Every time. And we really should because even though there's a bleeding risk, you got to be the one who's an expert to make sure you get tissue. So I believe in biopsy almost all of the time. I don't necessarily think that it needs to be done before ablation, kind of up to the refer if they really feel that it's necessary. But if it's walking like a duck and talking like a duck, I think it's still important to biopsy. And so my default is biopsy at the time of ablation if it hasn't been biopsied already. I biopsy at the time of ablation after my probes are in place. That's exactly right. I couldn't, <laughs> couldn't agree more. You know, at least one probe, depending on the size of the mask. Right. Because I, I, I got burned like my first year out of fellowship. I did the biopsy first and then there's blood. I didn't know where the lesion was. And then you have the choice. I get a big ablation zone or I bring them back. Yeah. And oh man, I couldn't even imagine. I would kill myself if I had to. But actually some of the, I try to teach this to the younger folks that come on board. And unfortunately they ended up having kind of hematomas just from probe placement because the kidney is so much less forgiving than the liver. But normally I'll always teach place your probes first, biopsy later, particularly with a partially or fully cystic lesion, right? Because you're totally hosed if you try to biopsy one of those. Right. Then they shrink down. It's like, where's the solid part? It's like a flat tire. Right. And I've been surprised so many times at these ones that are so cystic. I'm like, there's no way that's a cancer. And then you, you send it off and, and it's, you know, papillary. it's RCC. Or papillary right. renal cell. Yeah, for sure. I've really only had one where, because I, I biopsy at the time of ablation every time, except for the rare occasion where I have to do it first. Uh, and I've only had one that looked very much like an RCC. It came back. It was recent. And it was an unusual AML. It just didn't have, like, it had no macroscopic fat or anything like it. But, you know, when you, you get it back and it's oncocytoma or oncocytic neoplasm, and you're still probably treating those anyway. I don't think it would have changed my plan. No, and, and that goes to, or that speaks to counseling of the patient. So I'm sure you agree, but I feel very strongly, and the people that came before us, that trained us, always tried to instill this in us, you got to have uh, a clinic. Right. And so you have to counsel these. You can't counsel these patients on the day of. It just doesn't make sense. It's too much. Yeah. And I mean, you have to tell them, listen, there is a not insignificant chance that this is benign. And if you feel you'd rather undergo two procedures, fine. 99% of the time, patients will say, no, it's fine. Just get it out or take care of it, you know, as long as it's not surgical. But it is our responsibility to ensure that those patients know that there's at least, I don't know, five, 10% chance that this is benign. You know, smaller the mass, the higher the likelihood statistically and from the research that it's benign. I give the reminder, so so 98% of mine come from, from urology. And uh, I always remind them, it's like, you know, you were seen here by a urologist who is planning on removing this surgically. And so either way, this thing is getting removed. Right. And yeah, to your earlier point, I meant to answer the question. The majority of the renal mass ablations are coming from urology. And they come from our GU tumor board or direct from urology. And the majority are, if they're less than two centimeters, then they've grown because they've been on active surveillance. Or if they're between two and four centimeters, either they're a partial with recurrence on the contralateral or ipsilateral side. Or if they're larger than four centimeters, they're not a good surgical candidate. Exactly. And just for the listener, I didn't know until maybe a year or two ago that you know, for them, if they've had a partial and they get recurrence, that automatically is, is a nephrectomy for them. In the in his ipsilateral kidney? Yes. Oftentimes, yes, it is. Yep. Yeah. At least where I was, but I mean, that was, it was a nephrectomy every time that ipsilateral recurrence at that same site. Yep. Well, and you have to understand, right? The reason that that's the case is because that kidney's already been cross-clamped. They've already put their sutures in. And so I think it's less about the recurrence and scientific risk. I think it's more about the procedural risk. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So again, I think it's key for all of us to be thinking like the urologists. I mean, this is true in PAE as well. You have to be thinking how they are. And when they're thinking about recurrence, either at their margin or even in the ipsilateral kidney, but away from their site, they're like, well, what am I going to do now? And how much kidney do I really think I can leave? Right. We are always, when we're embolized, and this is also what I tell the younger guys, like, remember, 
when we're embolizing, we're trying to get into some little tiny three millimeter vessel and like coil it off or deliver embolic, like so that we save the kidney, right? Save normal parenchyma. And I understand it's just the way surgery works. For like a two centimeter mass, they're going to take half the kidney. So they're like, what do you want me to do? I mean, I can't like, I, just, I can't enucleate it. So I'm just going to take half the kidney. And by the way, the thing is bleeding like stink. You can't just like decide you're going to take a little tiny piece of it. You're like, oh crap. EBL is going to be at least two units or something or 2000. And they're just like, yeah, of course. That's because of nonopartial nephrectomy. So when you start thinking surgically like that, you're like, oh yeah, okay. Now I understand why they're saying that. Yeah, man, that's great. Think like you're all, that's going to be a tagline used for this episode. I like it. So let's talk about modalities. Are you using, what, you know, what are you using? Microwave, cryo, IRE? So everything we do is with general anesthesia, unless there's a reason that the patient can't undergo general anesthesia. Me too. And it's a little bit of overkill. I agree. And you can do it with moderate sedation and all this bullshit. But honestly, it's like, it's just a pain in the ass. Now I- Such a pain in the ass. Right. So I use CT fluoro for everything. Even like a 15 centimeter subcutaneous mass, I'll use CT fluoro. Like just- because I've gotten so fast with it. And another reason to use anesthesia, and I'll get to the modalities of the actual ablation, but just to understand our setup, the reason I use anesthesia also is because with one big breath hold, I can usually place two to three probes in one oh, breath hold. Yeah, okay. so if it's like a multi-probe placement, which a lot of these are, especially for the cryos, right? which is my default, by the way, but I'll get into that. Normally, I use CT fluoro so that the probes can just be placed very quickly. And I usually will try to do at least each probe with one breath hold. And we've got a semen somatome, I think, force. Technically, I, I think it's a dual energy. I actually don't remember. But it's like fully decked out yeah. with like the interventional package. And this is another thing, and we can go through these tidbits, but I tell the junior guys, you need to know how to operate the machine. Like you need to know how to flip it between fluoro and- I could not agree with you more. Right. You're going to have that case where somebody is out. Yeah. And yeah, the tech in there is like, I have no idea how to work this. And I'm learning as I go. Well, yeah, you're only, you're like a year out, right? No, I'm four. Oh, you're four. Okay. So we, we were right around the same time frame. So yeah, I mean, once I started, actually, that was the reason I learned it because one of our main techs who's, and all of the people at Moffer are great, but one of our techs was out. So they had a diagnostic guy inside and I was, I was in a lung and of course the patient was like bleeding and in pain. And I was like, I need to scan, like, give me fluoro back. And he's like, I don't know how. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, what do you mean? This is your, this is your job. You have to fix this. Right. And so from then on, I was like, I just need to learn this. Like, oh, it's totally, you totally do. I need to learn it. Instead, what I do is I just, I schedule all my ablations the day my favorite tech is here. Yeah, no, I full-heartedly suggest learning whatever system you have. Yeah. Well, it's just completely unreasonable for me to get mad at the tech to learn how to work the equipment that I'm supposed to know how to work. Correct. You're the leader of the team. You got to know all the jobs. You got to know all the responsibility. Like, and that's something that I try to engender in a lot of our younger folks. Like, listen, maybe it was different when surgeons could throw scalpels across the operating room. That doesn't work anymore. Right. Those probes are expensive. You can't throw them at people. Right. Exactly. So as far as modalities, um, it all depends on the exophyticness of the lesion. Entirely exophytic lesions, I will use microwave. And so what I say is, I use microwave whenever I can. And what that ends up being is probably a 70-30 split. 70% cryo, 30% microwave. I have a very low threshold to use cryo, like to not use microwave. And so if it's like partially exophytic, I can't say that all 50, it has to be 50% partially exophytic or anything like that, right? It's all about if you see any contact or any real proximity with the renal sinus fat or with the collecting system. I have no problem freezing through and through the collecting system. Interesting. Yeah, I do it all the time. And people think I'm okay. crazy. Right. Uh, through the center of the collecting system. I was like, yeah, I'm just going to freeze right into it. Uh, and I've not had a, a renal pelvic injury as a result. And I'm getting a little more aggressive with my microwave. But I just feel as though that microwave zone, the burning zone, could really cause renal pelvic stricture or renal pelvic injury. And what's the point, right? I mean, what's the benefit? I agree. It saves me 30 minutes, you know, to use microwave. But that was like the first thing in my new job that I needed when I started. Was, you guys got to get, like, they, they were using microwave for everything. I started, like, I got to have cryo available. No, you have to. You have to. I agree. If you're doing enough of them. For me, the other thing is, like, I, I just, for anything central or anything near the spine, I really like, I have to be able to see that ablation zone. And with microwave sometimes, like, you know, you get your predicted ablation zone, but we've all seen them get bigger or smaller than we expect. 
So let me, let me say something about that, actually. So two things. First of all, as far as availability, uh, for anybody trying to set up a practice, remember, it's not just the 30 minutes that it takes us that's extra. You have to think about the hospital having both of the gases available, depending on the system, the techs knowing how to restock the system, the space to have those gigantic tanks. Even though I know Endocare, who got bought up by Varian, who got bought up by Siemens, is now going to like a tankless system at some point. Yeah, eventually they want to. But I know that even still, you have those big blue tanks in the room, right? So there, you definitely, if you're going to get cryo, as I'm sure you know, you've got to make sure that that part's thought out as well. Yeah, it's a really good point. It's just something to keep in mind. Uh, but, you know, a lot of the systems have very reasonable policies and systems in place to get you in, you know, to using their equipment. Yeah, no, that's true. That's true. They're very good about it. You may not have to purchase the whole unit. Usually not. In fact, quite the opposite. Normally, you, you can get them to place their unit depending on your volume. And we could talk about that as well. But what I will tell you about seeing the ablation zone, I cryo a lot of renal cell mets into the bone. And I even will cryo like primary bony lesions. Like I recently cryoed a chondroblastoma. It was like a recurrent chondroblastoma in a young woman. And it, it like this, I'm, because we're program specific and pretty close with the sarcoma folks also. And so he was like, he's a good buddy of mine. He was like, man, he's like, I went in resected twice. It was in the greater trochanter. It just will not go away. And I was like, all right, you know, I'll try it. And I was like, there's some, like, bone graft in there and all sorts of crap that I'm just like, I don't know what's what. And I actually had to pin down our MSK guy with, I like created a conference tumor board with them. And I was like, guys, could you tell me where I'm supposed to actually freeze? Like, where do you think the recurrence is? And so it was like a really vertical lesion. He had gone in the center of it and like curated out the chondroblastoma and I had to go at the top and at the bottom. And he was like, listen, dude, just blast away. Well, one thing I will tell you about cryo that I think is different than microwave is for some reason, you know, you do get these huge zones and it causes such a crazy inflammatory reaction in soft tissues that you have to be really careful. She ended up having like basically foot drop when she woke up and it was because the sciatic nerve, which was like, I don't know, four centimeters away, but just all the inflammation in that area had irritated the nerve. So I saw her yesterday or two days ago with my colleague in clinic and she, uh, She's getting better and she'll probably get full recovery, but it's going to take like six months, right? So with the cryo, you know, it's a double-edged sword. Like they're a bigger zone oftentimes. And like, you can definitely see the cryo zone. And I agree in the kidney, you definitely want that. Uh, and even near the spine and stuff like that. But you've got to be careful because these zones, especially with, and again, I, we use endocare, which is the variant system or the semen system. I typically will use 24s, which is like the max dimension of the oblong ablation zones, 24 millimeters. Uh, and they're like probably 14 gauge needles or something like that. And they're super sharp, but I mean, they make pretty big zones. That ablation zone is very real when you see that ice ball forming. Oh yeah. I'm using the formerly Galil, now Boston scientific system, which I just, just the one I know, you know, we use that in fellowship. Yeah. They're all good systems. Yeah. It's a good procedure, but no cryo, you know, I've gotten aware with these ablation zones. One of the things I worry about most of these days after doing, I don't know how many, I'm now paying more attention to, I'm worried more about nerve injuries than I am about, you know, I haven't had, I've never had a bowel injury, knock on wood. You know, it's, it's the nerve injuries that make me nervous. You know, the one sex of the spine, you know, the, and then, you know, the genitive femoral nerve and, uh, you know. Yeah. So they always say, so point at the thing you don't want to touch, right? And whether it's bowel anteriorly, especially for these crazy anterior lesions, or if it's a real skinny person and you're close to the spine, I completely agree with you. The nerve injury seems to be the thing that, you know, starts to get us. If they're superficial, you know, then you're right up underneath the rib and you're getting some sort of intercostal nerve injury or something. I couldn't agree more. I have not, again, knock on wood, had a bowel injury. I haven't had, like, I think I've cryoed into the liver almost like intentionally just to make sure I got the ablation zone, had no issues. Like I said, I've cryoed through and through the collecting system, like the center part of it. Haven't had an issue. <laughs> uh, so lucky there. And I've done that actually several times, probably more than a dozen times. That's awesome. Where I've gotten burned, you know, quite literally is when I'm cryoing on superficial, like you're saying, or something close to a nerve. And then the other thing I do worry about is the proximal ureter kind of past the infundibulum and the renal pelvis and kind of like the, just the proximal descending ureter. I just never know what's really going to happen if you cryo that, right? Like I'm pretty aggressive about freezing right through the center of the collecting system. But I, I don't know why it's different in my mind, maybe because it's just a structure kind of floating in, out there in the fat. No, I agree. And I don't know any data that tells me that 
I'm more or less likely to get an injury with a specific device. But in those ones, in my head, I feel a little bit safer with cryo, you know, for the ones that are near the order. But I don't know that there's a real reason for that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's no real good data that I know of that suggests that one modality is better than the other as far as ureteral injury. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's weird. The microwave system always seems to be a smaller burn than what I gave it credit for, especially in the kidney. And we use, we have angiodynamics and microthermics, actually. Okay, I'm new wave. That, yeah, we, we trialed a bunch of different things. I have to tell you, the reason I like, the, I use angiodynamics almost, almost exclusively. Mm-hmm. And the reason is because the needle is like sharper than you could ever imagine. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. It matters. Like you, we've all had the ones where you're pushing the kidney out of the way because it's so hard and you just have to. Right. And it actually matters more for the kidney than the liver because the liver seems to be far more stable in place and forgiving. The kidney, as you're saying, you try to push and all of a sudden on your next scan, whether it's fluoro or to full acquisition, you think you're halfway through the kidney and it's pushed away four centimeters deep. Right. Pushes it off or slides off and goes next to the kidney or directly into the kidney. Right. And actually for that reason, another tidbit, I pretty much will insist that all of my patients are prone. Like I don't even, I usually don't even do them supine unless you absolutely like have to or can, but almost all of them prone. Yeah. I would do prone unless it's like a high left near the pancreas or I have to get away from the colon or I'll talk about this later. Like my favorite thing is going transhepatic for like a high renal lesion. That's funny. Yeah. No, I didn't. I've never even really, I guess I never really had to or thought about it, but I guess you could. Yeah. That's ballsy. So like a high renal lesion that's near the spine and I don't want to hit the spine and you know, if I have the choice or even not even necessarily a high one, like if I have to choose between going through a bunch of liver and going through a bunch of extra kidney, I'm going to choose liver every time for me. Interesting. I, I love transhepatic, but anyway, prone for 98% for me. Yeah. And prone. And I, I've tried a couple where it's like left side down or something like that. And it's just, it doesn't. I hate it. I would never do, I, I don't even do biopsies left side down or anything like that. I just, I hate one side down. They just, Start to gradually drift down over the, the course of the routine. When I was a resident, I was doing an ablation that side down and the patient literally fell over onto his side, onto the probe and basically impaled himself. Was totally fine. It missed everything, but it's like scarred for life. Yeah. So I would recommend anybody setting up a practice, just get GA if you can and go completely prone every time. I agree. GA all day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And if you have to move the patient, you have to move the patient. And that's not the end of the world. No. And I swear, I still think it's easier to do, to move the patient when they're GA than when they're sedated. Yeah. Oh, definitely. When they're sedated, good luck. Yeah. So let's talk about your approach to these central lesions near the collecting system. Sounds like you're doing mostly cryo for these, but yeah, sounds like you're able to get pretty aggressive with these. Yes. So the kind of size cutoff for me, I guess I don't really have one because I figure if they're Truthfully, if they're referring and the patient like can't get surgery, then I should try to do what I can do. So, you know, I mean, nine centimeter lesion with renal venous thrombosis. No, thanks. Like that's a little much. Would I do a nine centimeter lesion? Yes. Would I do it? Prove it. Would I insist on an embolization first? Yes. Would I say that our outcomes are probably not going to be as good as surgery? Yes. And the data does show that when you get above like four centimeters, really above five, our data falls off compared to surgery, which is expected. And I would concede that and we should to anybody asking like above a certain number, it's just, we're not going to perform as well. I would love to not do this. Right. That being said, a central lesion, I kind of look at it. It's like when you're playing golf and you're trying to carry like, you know, 200 yards over just water, they tell you not to think of the water, right? You're only looking at the pin. And to me, it's like, you kind of just don't look at anything in your way. You're like, well, I'm going to have to go right into that thing. And I've had a few, you know, there was one where one of my urology colleagues, it was like a bilobar mass or maybe even two masses on one. He resected the more superficial one and I can't blame him. He didn't even see the one below it. And then on the follow-up scan, like, cause they only follow up like six months later, lo and behold, this thing was getting bigger. He was like, uh, I think I missed the mass. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And it was probably like a two and a half centimeter mass just kind of nestled in the center, you know, of the mid and lower pole calyx. And he was like, you think you could do anything? He was like, otherwise I'm going to take the whole kidney out as you talked about. And I was like, yeah, I was like, let me have a chance. So I went right through his pledgets with like two 24s and blasted it and patient did great. Patient was really happy. And, you know, I probably need to publish at some point central lesions 
because we, in our practice with me and my colleagues, we have a decent amount of them. But I would just say, you know, the two things to worry about would of course be if it's central of the kidney, you got to be careful that your probe doesn't go through and through the, the center, like the main real artery or the anterior posterior main real artery. So there's a difference between pointing at the thing you don't want to freeze and skewering the renal artery. And I would just- I'm not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to do that. And so that's about the only thing I would say, but it doesn't mean that you can't take a trajectory that's away from the renal artery, but it's not still central. So I would just say, remember that central lesions can be done. You have to also remember that based on your trajectory, the part near the, the renal artery might be the area of recurrence. You have to be cognizant of that. And, you know, it's hard on our diagnostic colleagues. They're not there. They can't review all of our probes. They don't know what we're doing. So when you're following those patients up, you have to like insist that the diagnostic guy or girl you trust is really looking hard at the deep area or whatever the area is by the vessel. I think that's kind of the takeaway for me of what I've learned. Okay. Is there a role for stents or pilot perfusion? Any of that? I don't think I've ever done that since I was a resident. So it's been published. People use it. I know that it can work, although you never know in those patients if it didn't work without it, right? My feeling about piloperfusion as stents is to prevent renal pelvic injury. And when I've done cryo right through the center of the renal pelvis, I've not had an issue. So I don't see the point of the piloperfusion and stents. And I'm sure there are listeners out there that would be up in arms and say, no, there's this one situation where you really should do it and all that. I haven't encountered it yet. And I think I looked at my numbers before. I think in five years, it's been maybe even a couple thousand renal mass ablations, something like that. So it's been a decent amount and haven't had to use piloperfusion yet. Totally. I mean, and it sounds like you're also dealing the same problem I am is you're just really, really good. Yeah. God, I don't know about all that. Like I said, lucky is probably more accurate. What about uh, pre-ablation embolization? So I'm a huge proponent um, and I have a low threshold for doing that. And so really my size cutoff is between four and five. It depends on the orientation of the mass, depends on the location of the mass, depends on a few different things, how hypervascular I think it is. I've been burned before. Last guy I did actually, it's kind of a mess. He was heart failure, had like a five, that was the guy who had like the 5.5 centimeter mass. It was the anterior. I did a pre-op embo. It had like little tiny wispy vessels that I delivered like two cc's of embolic into, you know, the lipidol contrast mix shrank pretty much nothing at all because it wasn't hypervascular. Uh, three weeks later, I usually bring it back three to six weeks later. I usually, when I do pre-op embolization, I will usually use a couple of cc's of, of lipidol mixture so I can stain the tumor. And I use that first. And then I'll follow with like ones to threes or threes to fives just to back it up. Um, but I do like staining the tumor as much as I possibly can. And then I usually bring them back three to six weeks later. And then, like I said, my size cutoff is usually between four and five, depending on the orientation. You know, if you can get that nice oblong shape in a trajectory that makes sense, then you do it. Meaning you don't need to do the pre-op embolization. But if you, if you think you can't, then I would definitely favor it. And I always think it's not like there's anything to lose by doing it. It's going to be rare that you're going to shut down like half the kidney. And I always will say, this is what I tell our trainees, remember when you're doing a pre-op embolization that perfects the enemy of good. I mean, I say that anyway, but you don't have to pick off every vessel. You don't have to go to complete stasis like so that it's perfect. You need to just do a decent job so that you can control any potential bleeding in addition to making sure you get volume reduction. So that's not your endpoint. Your endpoint's the ablation. And so I always err on the side of doing it. I don't feel like it can hurt, but most of the time I will do some like above five centimeters. It's almost a must. And then between four and five, that's where I say, well, it could use it. And then less than four, I usually don't do it. And then normally I bring them back three to six weeks later. I will put in my order, please bring back in three to six weeks. I don't do any, I don't see them in clinic in between. I don't get imaging because it doesn't matter. And as long as their tests, you know, their lab tests are okay, doesn't make a difference. And the urologists love it actually. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. No, they're, they're all for it. They're like, great. Like you can actually do this. I'm like, yeah. And I'm like, listen, if they're not a, if they're not a good surgical candidate, you know, for lung disease or anything else, I'm like, listen, just let me embolize it. And like, we'll be fine. And so they're happy with that as well. You know, there's been some times that I'll use the monomodality for controlling the tumor. It's a different discussion you have with the patient, obviously, but the ability to say, listen, we can treat it and we can knock it back. I don't think I can be a hundred percent about it, but if you're in such bad heart failure that you can't get, you know, they might not be able to get you off the table. If you've got 
such bad COPD or, or fibrosis or whatever it is that's going on, why don't we just do a, an angio under moderate sedation and at least, you know, give some longevity there? Totally. Actually, I think you can make a really strong argument for doing that for the patients that are poor surgical candidates because worst case scenario for that urologist that sent it to you is for them to have to operate a bleed in the ablation bed. Like that's worst case scenario for that patient, that doctor. Right. Yeah. So I just, it, oftentimes if they're referring, you know, there's some issue going on and if it's a surgical risk situation, I don't think it's, it's going to be a big deal to just embolize them and then live to fight another day. Maybe things will improve, maybe not. And a lot of those patients are so sick that they're just like, listen, if you can just throw me a bone with this kidney cancer, great. I know I got other fish to fry. Yeah, I'm with you. How soon are you bringing them back for follow-up imaging? Sure. So I always will bring them back four weeks later. And that reason is, again, in the pre-op counseling, I always tell them that I'll bring them back four weeks later because I don't do a post-ablation scan with contrast. Unless they're bleeding, I don't do a post-ablation scan. So I'll always say, you know, I think I got it, presuming that I feel that way. And then... I'll bring them back four weeks later with imaging. And of course, if there's a recurrence and the recurrence rate or residual, whichever you want to call it, it really should be less than 5%, if not even lower. So if you're in your practice and you feel like you're seeing a lot of residual or recurrence, you know, want to change something about what you're doing. Right. Change something up. For me, most of the time I have a recurrence, I was expecting a higher risk of recurrence. Yeah. Well, they've already had a partial and then they've had a recurrence in the same kidney or on the other side. And then that's what I'm saying, you know, oftentimes when I go back and look at these challenging ones that I've had to go back on once or even twice, it's by the vessel. And that's the one where you almost have to be a little more aggressive with the freeze or the burn because of the heat sink. And it's usually me bringing it up to the diagnostic guys saying like, are you sure you don't see some enhancement there? And they're like, oh, well, may maybe. And I'm, I'm the one saying, yeah, I'm worried about it. But usually bring them back in a month just to make sure. And remember, that's different than the urologist, right? Our tagline is think like the urologist. So that's different. Those guys usually bring them back in like six months. I didn't realize that. Yeah, they usually bring them back way later. And so the patients are always wondering like, oh, I got to come back so soon. And you're like, yeah, it's because we did a image guided approach. Right. We're going to take some pictures. Right. And, and also we could always just do it again if we need to. It's not like surgery where we're making a huge incision or, or getting everything all set up. Like it's a procedure. That goes into every one of my consent discussions is, you know, we may be doing this again, but you know, it's, that's okay. It's not, you're getting a band-aid, not a, a bunch of stitches. Like we can do this. Yeah. And so I always will, we'll bring it back in a month and then I'll usually bring it back six months later. And then we follow all of the primary renal cell carcinomas that are referred to us. Meaning usually these patients incidentally found either they're counseled on the outside and then they want to come to Moffitt or they're referred to Moffitt for an incidentally found renal cell. They're not VHL associated. And they get referred to us because they're like two centimeters or less, which means that they saw the urologist once and which means that I'm basically setting up like a survivorship clinic. So the way the urologists think about it is for those straightforward quote unquote cases, you've got to follow them for five years to make sure there's no recurrence and then you can kind of discharge. So for the straightforward ones, bring them back in a month, then bring them back six months later, then follow them annually for five years. If they're recurrence, you know, from a post-partial or something like that, or anything more complicated, I'll usually actually call the urologist and say, tell me what you want me to do for follow-up, or I'll just send it back to you. One other thing I want to ask you is just something that, you know, you have picked up in the last few years out, pearl or a tip or something about ablation that's not necessarily obvious. Like for me, mine was going to be the transhepatic for the medial right renal lesions. I'm sure you've learned something in the last few years. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you a couple of things and we didn't get to talk about it. One thing is hydrodissection for the kidney works. So the reason I think it works is not because I think it protects the organs. I mean, it probably does. But when I say it works, I mean, for some reason, the perirenal fascia just like works the way you want it to, even anteriorly. So if you can get your needle, like just even approximately close your dissection needle and instill a shit ton of sterile water or saline, just go for it. And it usually will dissect the way you want. So that's the first thing I'll say about hydrodissection. Oh, I will also say, please, for all the people starting this, place your probes first, then hydrodissect. Like, don't do it in the other order. It may make sense to you at the time to hydrodissect first, but please don't do that. Just like biopsy, always place your probes first. That is the first thing that your goal should be because shit can go wrong quickly. And shit can move. That's what I mean. And, and you know, in, and if you're lucky, you place your probes, you do a biopsy, it's bleeding a little bit, and you've got your own hemodissection. So 
It's like always do that shit last. But so then the other thing I'll say, and especially because the patients are prone, don't be afraid to use air. I've used air plenty of times. Just room air? Yeah. I mean, you know, you're probably inserting it through the coaxial or or somehow anyway. When do you do air instead of fluid? Yeah. So if you're anterior and there's bowel and like if you just like if the fluid's not working or it's tracking craniocaudal in a different direction, sometimes the air, because the density will go the opposite direction. They do have these air filters that we use the fellowship, but people would look at me crazy at Moffitt if they're like, what the hell are you talking about? That was Harvard, so they had everything. But if you can insert a little bit of air, you might be surprised as to what happens. I'll try that. I've never used air. Once I used, there was a colon in the way that was just, it was all air filled or anything else. So, so one time I took a needle and just jammed it into the colon and just bled out farts for about 10 minutes to decompress it. The room smelled terrible, but it worked. It works. Well, the other thing you can do with that, because we get these crazy biopsies, like requests to try to biopsy colon or something. I mean, it is so hard to stick the colon or the small intestine. Totally. Right? I mean, that's why we don't do primary J-tubes. So if you need to, take your blunt needle and just move it out of the way manually. They move. So I actually will go transcolonic or through small bowel for biopsies routinely. And I'll try to do it on purpose. And the amazing thing is when you try to do it, it moves it out of the way about 60% of the time. Yeah, it's just the mesentery that ends up just, you know, it moves. So what I will say is the air, and this becomes more important, I think, with the ureter and with some of the small bowel anteriorly, air can help. Air is actually kind of crazy. I want to try that. That's great. Yeah, just take a 20cc syringe, fill it up, and then inject it. Especially because... You know, when I'm doing saline and I'll put a little contrast in there sometimes, no matter how little contrast I do in that hydrodissection fluid, it's always too much. Yeah, I don't put, I don't put contrast in there. No, it's, it's like a, you know, it's a, it's like making a smoothie that has banana in it. You put a little bit of banana in there, it becomes a banana smoothie. You put any contrast in there, it's so bright, you can't see anything. Right. So then the other things I'll say, so that was hydro and pneumodissection. The other things I'll say, so don't be afraid of central lesions, just be afraid of the vessels. And as we talked about before, point at the thing you don't want to freeze, but don't skewer the vessel. And it sounds hilarious, but it's actually true, right? Because people say, oh, like you're going to go central. Well, yeah, I can go through the collecting system to freeze, but you really do have to be cognizant of those main real vessels because those will kill you. You know, those are the things that, that suck. So don't be afraid. And then, oh, the other thing I'll say is I am a huge proponent of CT flora. I mean huge. To me, it's like if you have it available on your system, and this is just for all CD guided procedures, but if you have it, it's like driving a Ferrari and not taking it to the racetrack, right? Or not opening it up. It's like, you've got this car, you've got this technology, and you're only using it to go to the grocery store. Nine, that's me, man. That shit is sitting in my garage right now and I'm not using it. I would, like, I don't know how to, I'll fly to Shreveport, you know, Aaron's wife, that's, his wife is my cousin. And so that's how, like, we used to go to Shreveport every summer. Wow. Yeah, that's how I know Aaron. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So we used to go to Shreveport all the time. You said you're at Shreveport or Baton Rouge? Baton Rouge. Oh, all right. Well, I've been to Baton Rouge. Well, yeah, I'll, I'll use it for occasional, like a lung biopsy and the, you know, once every six months I do a lung ablation. No, dude, I think it's the opposite. I'm telling you, I actually, and this is on my list of crap to publish after all the prostate stuff. I think it results in higher quality and fewer complications. What? Yeah. Yeah, you should use it all the time because then you become the expert in it. I know. The problem is I'm just so extraordinarily, unusually talented with Yeah, everybody said- Maybe I don't need it. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but all right, I'll do it. My next ablation, I'll do it. And I will give you all the credit. And use it for the biopsies too. I'm telling you, just use it. The actual time on the table is cut in probably by 70, 80%. Okay, I trust you. I'll do it. My techs are so happy. They're like, oh, Dr. Priest here. Are they really? Yeah. It is easier so happy. Mine love me for not using it. I'm the only one who does it. No, my text is the opposite. They're like, why can't you convince any of these other guys to use it? And so one of the younger guys has, another younger guy won't, the younger woman that we just hired, she's not sure. And I keep giving her shit. I'm like, dude, do you want to get with the times? You want to be operating in the 1990s? I got to cry next week. I'll do it. Yeah. Do it on the biopsies too. I'm trying. Then let me know. And I mean, I'll come. Is it a Siemens machine? I'm embarrassed to say I don't even know what it is. I can't remember. It's probably Siemens. So if you need help, text me. I will, I will gladly help everybody. They know how to do it. Like I, it'll, it'll be fine. What I need to do is optimize it so I'm faster with it. Right now, it is not faster for me yet. Right. And so that's what I was saying. When I'm placing four or five probes, the probe placement total takes me probably 10 minutes at most. That's impressive. Right. And that's why the anesthesiologist likes me. That's why the techs like me. They're like, oh, 
Tech Freak, yeah, great. And so I'm like, listen, and this is the other thing. When you do use fluoro, I walk in because all of our CRNAs are different and the anesthesiologists are different. I always say the same thing. I'm like, this is like a bank robbery. Do exactly as I say and it will go smoothly. So <laughs> please always do end expiration breath hold. Don't do it halfway through the expiration or anything like that. Even when you guys sign out for lunch, please tell the person exactly how you did the end expiration breath hold because it's going to matter for my probe placement because I do everything with one breath hold. So I think that actually may be one of the most important points you shared, end expiration breath hold. I think that's like super important. Just the consistency of that, like trying to guess you're going to be wrong. Right. And that's actually the reason I like the fluoro because every time, and if, if I could show how the case goes, it's not like... I want the fluoro because I want to check the position after I push the needle in. I mean, I do, but actually I do it because I want to make sure position's stable right before I push the needle even further. And so that's actually the biggest advantage of the fluoro. I can convince me to try it. My next multiple probe case, I'm, I'm going to do it like that. I thought you just said your next case here. My next case isn't a multiple probe one. Is not or is? My next case, the one I have next week, I think I can probably get away with one. So, But this is where I would push you and be like, dude, just do it. Trust me. So just do it either way. Okay, I'll do it. I will. Just do it either way. I told you, do it on every single case. And you'll see a guy like you with four years experience within, I don't know, 10 or 15 cases will all of a sudden be like, oh, this is way quicker. Okay, I'm in. And then you'll have time. You'll have more time for prostate embos. There you go. But not prostate cancer embos because I didn't do my fellowship in IO at Moffitt Cancer Center. That's right, Mike. Which where our listeners should be paying attention to. What did I miss? Is there anything big that I forgot to cover? No, man. I mean, the biggest thing is uh, follow your patients in clinic. Make sure you're presenting the data to the GU guys because data never lies. Happy to share all the data that I presented before that's you know publicly available, but I've, I've gathered it and put it in a talk. So I'm happy to share it if anybody needs it to go convince the urologist to send over those small real masses. I love it, man. Thank you. I appreciate having you on. I learned a lot. I'm sure the listeners did too. And you're probably going to be hearing from a lot of them looking for jobs or fellowships. Good, man. Make sure they have like my contact info. Would love to talk to anybody. Yeah, guys, feel free to reach out to us too. I can put you in touch, my new friend. All right, we're good. All right, let's go Tampa Bay. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team lead is Kieran Gannon, with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.